calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey everyone, this is John Roca, one third of the Geek Buddies with this awesome ad for you. If you like this show and you want to make your own and some of you have reached out and asked us about making your own podcast, well, let me tell you about Anchor. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Go ahead and let your freak flag fly. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Take it from us here at the Geek Buddies. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now, on with the Geek Buddies show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Geek Buddies. Hey! We're back again for another week of geeky goodness brought to you by the great folks over at Carbon Health, carbonhealth.com. Go there and see the clinics that could be in your state, the virtual care that they offer for so many people across this country here. If you've got something you need to have taken care of, you've got testing for COVID that you need to take care of, you're going overseas, carbonhealth.com can help you take care of business there. And there's certainly a lot of people that we're going to talk about on this show that might need some Carbon Health for sure. And go to carbonhealth.com. They believe healthcare is a per- personal thing and they want to tailor a plan to you personally. Got I got that all out. Three pillars of healthcare there available for you. All right, let's introduce ourselves. I'm the outlaw John Roca, writer, producer, and host here on the uh, Geek Buddies. Mike? I am Michael Vogel. I'm a writer and producer of animated TV shows and movies. And this is Shannon McClung. I'm an animation writer and a television actor where you may have seen me on Silicon Valley, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and something that I'm going to shoot tomorrow. It'll be in a little bit, but when I can talk about it, I will. We'll miss you with the strawberry shortcake punch-up session. (laughs) 
And Shannon coming to us from this new location uh, uh, there. And uh, maybe if you can figure out how to turn the mic up just a little bit, Shannon, we'll be good to go here. But we're going to jump into yep. this thing. For those so of you far who are in the valley that it's hard to hear you. That's fair. That's fair. Which was his greatest oh. fear of moving deeper into the valley. But anyway, the, the, the idea that we've got going on here that we always do every week, each of us presents a geek news item. Then we take a quick break and jump into our main topic. And our main topic today in honor of the Batman coming out on March 4th, we're going to start doing more Batman content on the Geek Buddies. We're going to talk about the first two Batman films from Tim Burton and get into that world, that mythology, what our thoughts are looking back on it now. So get ready for that conversation a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but Michael, I think you start us off first. Please take it away. I do, and I am taking us to a galaxy far, far away, which is one of our favorite places to visit here on the Geek Buddies. A uh, couple pieces of news uh, in the Star Wars Lucasfilm realm. Um, first of all, as most people know, because it was all over Twitter, big news this week, uh, actress Mary Elizabeth Winstead is joining Rosario Dawson uh, in the cast for the new live-action Ahsoka Tano series. Uh, that's the news. That's the tweet. That's all we got. We don't know what she's doing, but as is typically the case with Star Wars fans, as uh, soon as it was announced, everybody started checking their Star Wars Wikipedia pages to make sure how tall every single woman in the Star Wars universe was to try and figure out who Mary Elizabeth Winstead might be playing. Um, super awesome. She's an amazing, amazing actress. Uh, you know, you might have seen her in Birds of Prey. She's been in a ton of stuff. She's really, really good. Uh, and yeah, like I said, lots of guesses, lots of, it, as is typically the case, my guess is that she's probably a brand new character, but uh, that doesn't stop us all from having our favorite people in the Star Wars universe or the uh, non-canon universe or the canon universe. So, gentlemen, any thoughts on Miss Winstead uh, joining Ahsoka Tano? Please, Shannon. All right, is my volume okay? Yes, is it too perfect. Loud? Good. Thank Great. you, bud. Um, so, yes, I agree with Vogel. She, she is, to my, to my knowledge, not going to be a legacy character. I think the, the automatic go-to is Hera but it's like eh, I think she's still a little she's a little young to be to be Hera where Hera would be in this in this span of time I think because Mary Elizabeth Winston I believe is in her early 30s mid 30s and Hera I'm thinking is probably more like mid 40s um but either way like no matter who she's playing um as as Vogel mentioned uh you know Birds of Prey Fargo Scott Pilgrim versus the world um Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a is a dynamic performer and I think she is only going to she is only going to help uh the series I mean just knowing that her and Rosario Dawson are going to be sharing the screen together it's very very exciting and Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is, is terrific and I am very very curious who she's going to play Maybe she's gonna. Maybe she's gonna be a villain. Maybe she's gonna be a villain, uh, a a sidekick, a partner to uh, to the not announced yet Thrawn. Who knows? I mean, not announced, but in Ahsoka's one uh, episode of uh, Mandalorian, she sure dropped that name real, real hard. Uh, sure. Johnny, what do you think? What do you think? Any yeah. uh, any guesses on your side? Look, I'm a big fan of Mary Elizabeth Winstead for quite some time, uh, even before Scott Pilgrim. I can't believe what I can't remember what it was I saw her in, but I became a big fan of hers. Of course, she's beautiful, which it helps for me to be a, develop a crush for her. But then seeing her incredible work through all these films that she's done, it's been great, and it's a reuniting of Rosario and Mary Elizabeth from Death Proof. 
So nice to see them coming back together in this uh, new franchise and having some fun together. Will it be a legacy character? Who knows? I mean, uh, Harrison Dula, I get your point. Maybe it's a possibility. Mara Jade is a possibility. She's had, she obviously is with you and McGregor in real life. So that could play into this equation as well. She could be one of the seventh, one of the sisters, right? So that could be a possibility as well. Uh, some people mentioned Barris Offy. I could see Barris Offy, her being Barris Offy as well. Or it could be a new character. We had, I can't remember the name of the actress who was cast in this. She is supposedly playing a new character. Will Mary Elizabeth be, be connected to Thrawn in some way? I don't know. There's a lot of angles it can go in. But the excitement is that someone of her talent and her caliber and the fact that she's been kind of playing these badass roles lately with Kate uh, and with the Huntress, it kind of leans into a wheelhouse to slide into a new franchise and do some more kick-ass work, uh, both as an actress and also as a fighter. So I'm looking forward to it overall. But whatever she is, honestly, doesn't matter to me. What matters to me more is that she's in it and that it's another badass woman to add to the number of badass women in Ahsoka already. So it's good stuff. Yeah, I think the most outside shot that I saw on Twitter that I don't think is going to be the case, but oh, somebody yeah. put a picture of Mary Elizabeth Winstead next to uh, Carrie Fisher yeah. uh, in Return of the Jedi and said that uh, in this era of the timeline, she wouldn't be the worst choice to play a Return of the Jedi era Leia. But I have a feeling that uh, that uh, in honor of Carrie Fisher, we're probably going to let Leia live. So I, I don't think that's the case, but I think it was an interesting one to throw out. Uh, yeah, Barris Offie was my guess. Uh, I mean, my guess that I think is a thousand percent not going to be the case but uh from clone wars uh you know uh your your her jedi friend when she was at the temple who then ended up like betraying her and uh framing her for the thing that ended up getting her to leave the temple uh if that character were to come back could be interesting but i yeah. definitely agree with you guys i have a feeling she's going to be a brand new character um but i'm super excited about it so uh more interesting news i mean i think like most people uh you know obviously i'm excited for kenobi stoked for the return of Anakin Skywalker, but seeing the further adventures of Ahsoka Tano in live action is definitely the peak of Star Wars excitement for me. So uh, so, so any news we get on it is really exciting. Yeah, and I, um, I don't want to get our... too deep into this. I know you got another piece of news, but this idea of not being able to recast Leia and Luke, give me a break with this stuff. We got to end with this nonsense. Let's move. We've recast so many legacy characters in Star Wars. Why the fuck can't we recast Luke and Leia? Give me a break. We can recast how many legacy characters? How many legacy Boba. characters have we recast? Uh, Lando, Boba, Anakin. We've played new character. New actors have come in to play these characters, so it's not a big deal to have another actor come in and play this character. I just don't think it's a well, big deal. I think the examples you're giving, Boba, you know, never took never took the helmet off. Lando, significantly younger. Like, yes, you're right. Han and Lando, they did recast, but it was for a different generation. Han and Lando. Um, we have a different Anakin, generation. I don't, I don't, Anakin, I no. don't think you can really yeah. count that one. No, no, no. What Shannon, what look, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're wrong necessarily, mm. but what Shannon is saying is when you're going to take uh, Han Solo or Lando Calrissian and you are going to tell a story mm -hmm. of them when they were much younger mm -hmm. than they ever were when we saw them, yeah. you cast younger people. Sure. What you would be doing with Mary Elizabeth Winstead, which I'm not saying is, off limits, I'm uh -huh. saying I don't think they're going to do it, is you are casting someone who is going to play an act, a character yeah. that was at the exact same age as they were when we saw them, which I don't think they have done as much in Star Wars. I don't, It'll I be can't years think later. Of... It'll be years later Five. after after, Return, after the Jedi, Five. whatever it is. Yeah, Five. years later. Years later. Yeah. By the way, 
I'm not I saying. I look the same now that I did five years later. People change. John, you haven't aged a day. You haven't aged a day. You haven't aged a day. Please. But I do think this whole this whole conversation does lead into the next topic we have, which is uh, AV Club had AV Club had a really interesting article about Lucasfilm in general, yeah. um, not necessarily Star Wars related, but a little bit Star Wars related. Um, I think we've covered this before. Uh, Lucasfilm a while back got the rights to uh, the young adult novel uh, Children of Blood and Bone um, by Tommy uh, Adiemi. Uh, great book. It's an amazing sort of fantasy novel, fantasy series um, by a black author with black characters with a fantasy world that's much more inspired by African culture than most of our typical fantasy, which is more European medieval culture. Uh, it's a great series. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. But Lucasfilm announced that they were going to make this, and a lot of people were really excited that this was like the first step in Lucasfilm under Disney kind of doing something brand new, something that was not already in their wheelhouse, not already in their library. Well, that is no longer happening um, due to typical Lucasfilm creative differences. Uh, <laughs> they, let the, uh, they let the rights uh, lapse, and Paramount picked them up. So Paramount is now making Children of Blood and Bone. Um, and part of the problem, apparently, was that Tommy Adeyemi was really frustrated at Lucasfilm um, about letting her write the adaptation of the script, uh, and it was really stalled out, and things weren't moving forward. And so what AV Club pointed out, I think rightly so, is that this is not the first time that there was some big announcement that Lucasfilm had that then was stalled out because of creative differences, or they couldn't get things moving. And it does seem to be that like this is a problem. And with Children of Blood and Bone not moving forward, it also seems that Lucasfilm is pretty much sticking to doing what they already know. We're going to get a lot more Star Wars, which none of us are mad about. We're going to get a new Indiana Jones. We have a Willow series coming out, at least for the moment, on Disney+. Plus. Um, but people are kind of pointing out that when it comes to uh, paving new ground creatively, Lucasfilm seems to really struggle. When it comes to going back and retelling stories or telling stories in eras that are already well mapped out, they do pretty well. Now, look, obviously with Mandalorian and with Book of Boba, Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni and the team are telling stories that are between what happens in Return of the Jedi and what happens in Force Awakens. Right. But when we think about what happens post-Rise of Skywalker, what we're doing in a world with no more Skywalkers, no more of any of these characters that are legacy characters, it really seems like Lucasfilm is scared to death. And with Children of Blood and Bone going away, it also seems like they don't really know how to do things moving forward. So to Johnny's point about recasting legacy characters, I think we could talk all day about whether it's right or wrong to recast Leia, to recast Luke, to have new actors come in and play those roles. Certainly. But I do think the bigger question is, creatively, is that what we should even be talking about? Yeah. Or whether it be within the Star Wars universe or outside the Star Wars universe, do we want the amazing and talented artists and writers and creatives at Lucasfilm to start paving new ground? So that was, I thought, a really interesting topic of discussion. And I'm curious as to what you two think about that. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of paving new ground. I'm a fan of of moving forward. I'm a fan of creating new stuff. You know, uh, I, I I'm a big fan. But if we're if, but I also I'm also kind of breaking my preciousness about the old stuff. I'm trying to break that stuff because I don't want to be robbed of great Luke and Leia stories simply because we're too afraid to recast. No, there's so much that we can see from that. So if we break that in a way, that's kind of breaking new ground. That being said. 
I also think, man, Lucasfilm looked at the situation. I think they see like, okay, we're scared to take chances. This feels very similar, Mike and Shannon, to when they stopped doing Star Wars story after the Solo situation. They were worried about, okay, going forward with something like this. So they're just going to rely on the old reliables. And look, we haven't left Tatooine. We have, we're going to get Tatooine again <laughs> in, in Kenobi. And Din Djarin, oh, sorry. Um, um, oh, God. Uh, uh, I can't remember right now. My brain is, is mush right now. But uh, Rogue One, we're going to get that. Uh, Andor, Cassian yeah, Andor. Cassian, we get an Andor series that is essentially the older, you know, right around that time when the Empire and the Republic are getting into Republic. So we're not leaving the old areas anytime soon, which is something we did talk about a few weeks ago. So for me, I'm like, break it already. Try something new. Uh, eventually, yeah. you'll make it work. But it seems like they don't want to do that, and they want to stick around with what they know. And, you know, sometimes playing it safe is good when you're a big corporation. But eventually, you're going to run out of areas to go into and play safe. So you have to take some chances. Yeah, you know, I kind I, I mean, I kind of agree with John. Uh, you know, at one point, Star Wars was new. At one point, Indiana yeah. Jones was new. Like, you know, you can only go back and sort of – uh, uh, go over uh, worn ground so many times. Now, granted, the Star Wars universe is enormous, and the success of the Mandalorian has shown, like, hey, we don't have to deal with every, you know, with all of these characters that we've already had stories. Like, there, there's room for new people. Um, that being said, I think that's sort of the. I, I'm curious whose decision it was. Was it Kathleen Kennedy's or was it Disney's? Mm. Because that's the thing is ultimately Disney is probably given the marching orders. It's like, hey. We'd rather you Marvel is sticking with the Marvel universe. Right. Yeah. We'd rather we'd rather Lucasfilm stick with Star Wars, stick with Indiana Jones. I mean, and like Indiana Jones Five is going to come out. What's going to happen after that? Like, I, I seriously doubt there will be a six, but there's a chance they may recast him. For God's sakes, um, no. Oklahoma Smith. Kind of, Oklahoma Smith is going to be the new hero. <laughs> Oklahoma Smith. He runs an artisanal bakery. Yep. <laughs> By day, but by night. <laughs> but then we're also going to get the willow series so i'll be i'll be curious yeah. to see how this stuff comes out because no one would have <laughs> projected that willow would be you know the well that they would go back to but who knows i mean maybe it's good but i think at the end of the day like yes you have to you have to broaden your horizons because at some point the well is going to run dry yeah yeah well and i will say i mean look i i'm, I'm really kind of torn on the star wars front because i also love when we get brand new franchises brand new stories like i said children of blood and bone is one of those franchises that you're like this is a rich story with amazing characters we should delve into this i also love star wars yeah but i do think that as like to johnny's point i would push back a little bit on and it's fine we can just disagree on this but like i don't know that there are a ton of untold luke and leia stories that i need to see like i'm actually more than happy to let luke and leia be the legacy characters that they are because I am getting completely invested in the Jedi and the High Republic that mm -hmm. are out right now in the mm -hmm. comics and publishing. Like, I think those Jedi are super interesting and I would love to see them on live and on, 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 uh, on the big screen. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious as to what Lucasfilm and probably Filoni and Favreau are going to do post Rise of Skywalker. Like yeah. the Empire and the First Order have been defeated. We're not gonna go back to that well again. What is the Star Wars universe post then? I do think if you look at like the villains and the uh, the challenges that they've created in the High Republic, there's no Stormtroopers, there's no Empire, yep. there's yep. no Palpatine. And they've created something that Star Wars fans are really, really into. So I think the Star Wars universe is big enough that you actually have the room to create a lot of new 
within the familiar and to John's point by not going to Tatooine again, by not going to Mustafar, by not going to Naboo, but by going to new places. And I really enjoy and encourage them to do that. So that's why I think it's like the whole debate of like, well, should we recast Luke and Leia or not? I don't think I'm precious. I do agree with you. Like, I'm not so precious that I think no actress could ever step into the shoes of uh, Leo Organa Solo and play her. I think we definitely, there's a world where that could happen. I don't think Carrie Fisher's the only one who could do it. I just kind of want them to not maybe go back to that well. I think that's that's where I'm on it. That's totally fair. I mean, I would say there are a lot of bloodlines. There are a lot of books that have come out with storylines with Luke and Leia that could be explored for, for sure. sure. But I take your point, though, Mike, as well. That's an excellent point you make about, you know, if you're going to do it, there has to be a reason for it and, and what have you. Because, I mean, the Brits seem way less precious. There have been 30 James Bonds, 40 Doctor Whos. Like, there's, there's a, so it's not a big deal. So Both I just of those wonder... examples are not exactly the same thing, but I hear your point. Yeah. We could argue this could be our main topic, and we could argue it for the rest of the hour, but That's I know we have other good stuff yeah. to talk about. Let's <laughs> move on to our next thing here, and what we're talking about next, that this is my turn here, and that's the Peter Dinklage story. He was on uh, Mark Maron's podcast, the WTF podcast, which is a great podcast. It's one that inspired me to do what I'm doing now. He was asked about this idea of the live-action Snow White, which ironically stars Rachel Zegler, a, a Latina as Snow White and Gal Gadot, an Israeli-born woman as the evil queen, and said, he, this was his quote, he said, literally, no offense to anyone, but I was a little taken aback when they were very proud to cast a Latina actress as Snow White, but you're still telling the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Take a step back and look what you're doing there. It makes no sense to me. You're progressive in one way, but then you're still making that fucking backwards story about seven dwarves living in a cave together? What the fuck are you doing, man? Have I done nothing to advance the cause for my soapbox? I guess I'm not loud enough. And he said to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film. This is, well, sorry, Disney responded and said to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film. We are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with the members of the dwarfism community. We look forward to sharing more as the film heads into production after a lengthy development period. That's what was said there. Mike, oh, sorry, I put our things back up. Mike, your thoughts on this overall i mean you've been on you know you've been on the executive side of things you've heard these battles these arguments what did you think about peter dinklage's um situation here one of my cynical friends on twitter said this is a great way to keep his name in the headlines for a nomination for cyrano but also this is a way to maybe lobby to be included as a technical advisor uh, in this situation do you think it's uh, what do you think of his words do you think it's odd that disney didn't go to him to maybe talk to him about this approach I don't think it's odd that Disney didn't go to him because I don't think he is the only person who is capable of speaking to the subject. And just like every uh, marginalized community, I'm sure that there are lots of groups of very educated people who you can go to and speak to this. On Strawberry Shortcake, whenever we have any kind of cultural issue, uh, we go to different groups of people and we get consultants on board. And it sounds like Disney's doing that. So I don't know that it's weird that they didn't go to Peter Dinklage just because he's the person that most of us think of maybe right off the bat when we're trying to think of people um, who have dwarfism. I I think, I don't think he, I don't think it was cynical at all. I think he was on WTF and I think this is, I would imagine this is probably something that's important to him. Just going out on a limb. Um, So I think it makes sense that he would bring it up. Um, I'm really curious. I'm curious about two things. I'm curious as to what Disney's going to do. I'm curious to see what the announcements are and how they're going to interpret uh, the Seven Dwarves, uh, 
in a way that is new and different. And I'm also curious, and I would, I mean, this is something that I would be curious to hear from experts in the dwarfism community, or mm -hmm. uh, if Peter Dinklage were to elaborate, is what is the exact issue? Like, I'm really curious, like, like, look, we lo last week we talked about the trailer of the new Lord of the Rings coming out. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of dwarves in that story that are going to be getting some rings. So what I'm curious about is, what are the things that the dwarfism community actually really objects to? Is it dwarves being portrayed in the more mythological sense? Is it the is it the silliness of the dwarves in the seven dwarves? Like, what are the things? And and I don't I don't. This is not in a way to sort of be like because I still want dwarves. Like, if it's like a thing where we don't like the portrayal in fantasy series and how that has affected our lives and we need to think of a new way to do it. I think that's a really interesting creative challenge and a really interesting discussion. If it is, you can have dwarves in your stories, but here are the things that we are tired of seeing that are the stereotypes that we always have to deal with. I think that's really interesting. So yeah. I think it's a, it's actually, um, I'm sure, a much more nuanced uh, discussion than what we get in all of the headlines that came out over the past few days. Um, but I actually think it's a it's a actually an interesting topic to dive into and say when we think of the things in our fantasy, in our mythology, in our fairy tales, and we think about how we're going to continue to reinterpret those for the next hundred years, the next two hundred years. What are the, what are we keeping from these stories, and what are we adapting? And I think that's really interesting. You know, Shannon, we've heard this term unconscious racism uh, go around over the last couple of years. I did. Oh, we weren't aware of it. We weren't aware of it. In one way, we're progressive. Like we get Tina Fey gets to run a show, but then Tina Fey gets called out for making Asian jokes. So it's like, OK, great. A white woman gets to run a show. But these, this other side of the thing, why aren't you paying attention to this? And this is what, in essence, Peter is saying, like this Disney was patting itself on the back for casting a Latina and casting an Israeli born woman in these roles. But then on the other side. How are they approaching this uh, idea of remaking a film like this? Why even do it? It, uh, it seems unprogressive to him to even do it. So what do you think of his comments? You know, I mean, uh, not not to parrot Vogel entirely. Um, but mm. yeah, I'd be curious. It, it's, it's a concern that would not have come to the forefront of my mind. And it's also one that shouldn't be dismissed. Um, you know, you're, you're listening to a representative of the community. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious where the specific issue is the specific issue with the term dwarf. Is is that the problem? Because I think it's more the in, approach that they're ha they're even doing this. Like, who but, needs I think, to but, see but, but my question but about that thing. is, what is the approach? Like, what yeah, is the right. approach? Like, I think exactly. that's where I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, yeah. you know, did, did, was there an issue over hobbits who are also smaller smaller uh smaller characters yes. like is that what what is what is the issue um and, and i think it's something that is is interesting and, and i'm curious to hear what the conversation is because in fantasy the term dwarf has been used for a very very long time right. and that unconscious racism that you were talking about like if if that is an issue then yes it should be addressed 100 percent yeah yeah. And I do I do want to say this because I can literally hear uh, Fox News picking up this story or I can literally he oh, see yeah. the tweets coming down the line, which is, oh, great. Now we're not even allowed to have Snow White and the Seven Dwarves anymore. We've gone too far. Do we have to change Lord of the Rings? Has Lord of the Rings been canceled? Like I can literally hear this discussion. And 
<laughs> First of all, I don't know that that is the case. Like that is why I'm really curious to hear right. more about a have a more nuanced discussion about what are the pressure points. To Shannon's point, is it the word? Yeah. Is it the portrayal? Like, is it okay if the dwarves are mighty warriors, like in Lord of the Rings? But if we are kind of making fun of them and they're bumbling around, like. Uh, you know, more silly kind of portrayal or like the munchkins in Wizard of Oz. We don't love that so much. And I think that there's probably a much more like, here's what the issues are. But I'll also say that like, I don't think it's horrible that we look at our mythology. uh, We look at our fantasy, which has often been in many ways a portrayal of cultural issues at the time and look at ways that we can retell those stories. There was a time when every stepmother in fairy tales were just the moms. It yeah. was Snow White's mom that did that shit to her. It was, you know, like, and and like that got shifted to stepmothers. And like, you know, you look back at the old fairy tales, like the Grimm Brothers collected that were like super dark and fucked yeah. up with like sisters, uh, stepsisters getting their eyes pecked out and everything. And that's not the story that we know from Disney. And so I think like fairy tales, uh, particularly since this is specifically what we're talking about, have a long history of being changed and adapted to fit the times. And maybe now is the right time to look at some of these issues and say, look, Snow White going out into the woods, escaping her wicked stepmother and finding some awesome people that helped her is a part of the story, but maybe we're reinterpreting that. And I think that is a conversation we should be open to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we've seen versions of Snow White with this already. Snow White and the Huntsman. This is this is we've seen versions, different versions of their approach to uh, the dwarves, the seven dwarves in the classic tale. So curious to see. And we're years out and we're years out from seeing anything. And maybe this is Dinklage's way of saying, hey, I'd like to be part of this conversation in some way. Who knows? Uh, All right, let's move on to our next thing. Uh, Shannon, uh, what do we got with these uh, trailers, my man? Yes, because we're running out of time. We're only going to do two. Trailers, trailers. The first trailer is for the second season of Picard on Paramount+. Plus. So uh, our our loyal audiences will remember that, you know, we did some spoiler reviews of that first season. John and Mike knowing way more about Star Trek than I do. I was just, I was literally just a passenger on the ship. Um, But I enjoyed the series. So, John. Our first look at Picard season two. What did you all think? I'll go real quick. I loved it. Thought it was good. It already looks better than the first season, even though I enjoyed the first season. I love that we're getting Q back. I love that Whoopi's coming back. I love that we're exploring that he's still got the Borg Queen stuff still in his head. What part are they going to play? And it has shades of Star Trek four where they go back in time. And I know that's the original series, but it has shades where they go back in time to a modern time and have to kind of figure out Uh, how to navigate the situation. So to me, all of it speaks volumes. And this time convergence thing, what does this mean? All of it opens the door. I mean, we're dealing with what? We're dealing with multiverses now in both the Marvel and uh, and, uh, DC. So why not here in Star Trek where it's been done before? So I'm excited to see it. And it looks way more badass uh, and fun. And now that the crew is a well-oiled machine, this gets me very excited to see what we're going to get in season two. Mike? Yeah, look, I'm like they're they're smart. Like this is literally a greatest hits of things that even a casual Star Trek viewer loves. Like if you're a if you're a hardcore Star Trek fan, Wrath of Khan's probably your favorite. If you're like a little bit younger, a little bit more casual, Star Trek for the Voyage Home, aka the Whale movie, is probably the one you like the most because it's definitely the funniest one. Uh Q, big hit. Borg Queen, big hit. Guinan, big hit. Uh, And so it looks like they are just going like boom, boom, boom. And like Johnny said, like I love 
when Star Trek delves into time travel. Uh, I don't think it's just a slight reference. Like, it literally looks in the trailer like that ship is slingshotting around the sun, yeah. which is the same way that the Enterprise goes back in time in Star Trek Four. Um, and the other part that I'm particularly, a couple things that I'm particularly excited about that I'll say really quick. One, um, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, I believe it's yesterday's Enterprise, where uh, like there is time shifts and Enterprise becomes a warship, Tasha Yar is in it, like it's a whole big thing. Right. But the only way that they know that history has been changed is that Guinan, uh, because of her alien species, is the only one who knows that things aren't right. So in this trailer, when Picard is like, I know the one person who we can go to to see what happened, and they go to Guinan, it's clearly like a reference to that episode. It's a reference to that whole vibe. Q and Guinan have a history together that has only been lightly touched on in Next Generation. Like they've said that they've dealt with each other in the past. Q has called her an imp where trouble always follows where she goes, but we don't know a lot about them. Q is the one that introduced uh, the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation, I think maybe in the episode where Guinan first appeared, um, Guinan's race was decimated by the Borg. We do know that about her. Right. So even though it's like, okay, well, let's take all these different characters, like there is a rhyme and reason to them all showing up. Um, even the Borg Queen being important because the Borg know how to time travel, which we know from First Contact. So there's a lot of really, really cool sort of uh, connections, if you are a next generation nerd, like I clearly am, uh, <laughs> to what makes it cool. But also when Star Trek does do this go back in time thing, it is the more accessible version of Star Trek that even a casual person can watch and go, oh, people out of time, people from the future dealing with our modern day issues, that's always fun. So I'm really, really curious to see where they go with it. Uh, and I also love a good time travel story. So I'm 100% down on this. And John DeLancey yeah, looks damn good. Oh. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> as as a casual, very casual Star Trek viewer, they're batting a thousand with time travel stories that I've watched. Mm -hmm. So yes, I will I will certainly check this one out. And it is coming out March third on Paramount Plus. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to wait around for March third, if you'd rather watch something on February third on a different streaming platform that has nothing to do with sci-fi, we've got Murderville. So this is basically Will Ferrell plays an eccentric detective named Terry Will Seattle. Will Arnett. Will Arnett. Oh, what did I say? Will Ferrell? Yeah. Sorry about that. So yes, Will Arnett of Arrested Development fame plays an eccentric uh, police detective named Terry Seattle, who each week he is teamed up with a different guest that they range from uh, Kumail Nanjiani to Sharon Stone to Marshawn Lynch. So I will say Will Arnett in a mustache funny will arnett doing improv funny will arnett with a celebrity guest funny so i think this all sounds funny gentlemen what did you all think of our first look at murderville <laughs> I, I i hope it's good that's what i'll say i've kind of left the will arnett train a while ago so i haven't found his stuff funny in quite some time so i don't know how i'm gonna feel watching this uh, movie but or episode or series rather but i will give it a chance i will give it a try for sure because hey Marshawn Lynch is such an out-of-the-box decision. For those of you who don't know, running back for the Seattle Seahawks and for the Las Vegas Raiders for quite some time. So nice to see him be a part of this. But what an interesting collection of people that he's got to play with and seeing them break a little bit. I mean, the Conan O'Brien doing the last name thing, that was great. So there are moments of this that I think are really funny. And if those are the moments they string together, then I'm down. Having Ken go down and write the thing, its I've seen that joke. How many times, Ken? I mean, it, you know, all of that. I'm like, okay, are we going to break new ground with comedy in this series? Then yes, 
I'm absolutely down. So the fact that you don't know what's going to happen and they really are improving in the moment, that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, just to be really clear on the improv front, like, each week there's a new guest yeah. and they don't have a script. Yeah. Will Arnett is leading this whole thing and he is telling them what to do and he is fucking with them the entire time. So watching these actors and actresses come in... And watching Will Arnett make them do ridiculous stuff as they are supposed to figure out who did the murder, um, like that's something I haven't seen before. And I love a really good improv show, uh, even just like on stage. Like I just love improv. I think it's really funny. So taking improv and putting it in this world like this, it's definitely something I haven't seen before. And yeah, based on the trailer, it looks like he's really going to mess with them. Uh, and I'm really, really curious to see how it goes. I'm, I'm excited for it. I think it looks hilarious. There's shades of yeah. punk in it, right? There's shades of punk to where Ashton was like guiding through, through certain scenes, telling people in their ears what to think or what to say. But this is way more bigger than that, for sure. This is closer to a show that was on probably about 10 years ago on network. I think it was called Thank Goodness You're Here. I think it was Drew Carey hosted it. And it was basically oh. thrusting people that don't necessarily have improvisational experience mm. with seasoned improvers and kind of seeing what happens. It was largely a train wreck. I was going to um, say, how many seasons did that last? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it, it maybe lasted five, six episodes. Like you had Tom Green just destroying the set at one point like that was sort of the 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 scope of his ability but this because it's on a streamer because you have a seasoned uh, improvisational comedian guiding the story hopefully this is going to be funny like again watching them drop f-bombs for even for my puritanical ears um i still thought it was pretty funny (laughs) yeah did you have something else mike no 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 that's it okay and there you go so that comes out february 3rd as shannon said earlier look out for that all right we're going to take a quick break and jump into our main topic and talk about those tim burton movie batman movies in just a couple of seconds i mean obviously don't ding me for obviously i mean it was good it was good it was good it was good all right, let's get into this thing. Tim Burt, uh, the Batman is coming out March 4th. Uh, they've already released a funeral soon, which I did a trailer reaction to. They released some TV spots recently that give you a little bit more of the background on the Riddler and what have you. But we're going to do some fun things talking about the Batman, revisiting some of the best stuff of Batman or some of the worst stuff of Batman in preparation for that coming out. And one of the things I pitched to the guys, and they were more than happy to jump on board, was talking about these Tim Burton films. Looking back on the, I know Michael in the past has referenced how him and his brother have gone back and watched some of these. I have done that. I'm sure Shannon has as well. So let's give our overall thoughts. 1989's Batman, this introducing Michael Keaton as the Batman, much to a lot of people's chagrin at the time. The, even, the, even the casting of Jack Nicholson as the Joker, a lot of people had issues with. They were like, oh, my Joker's not some middle-aged dude like Jack Nicholson. He's a different, skinnier guy, different approach. Kim Bassinger in this, Ken Wool, remember him? Uh, uh, and uh, um, uh, Michael Hoff is the is Alfred, uh, and Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon. We had Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent, uh, and all mm. of this. And uh, of course, uh, um, Jack, the late great Jack Palance, there as Gus Grissom. So, what did you got? What, now, when you look back on these Batman, on this at least the first Batman movie, what's your feeling about this uh, 1989's Batman, gentlemen? I mean, summer. 
1989 was an incredible time for movies. Like yeah. you, we got so many films that stayed with us with Batman and Last Crusade and Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, Dead Poets Society. Like it was a huge, huge summer. And even though there are other films that have stayed with me longer, like Last Crusade, because I'm a big Indiana Jones guy, that summer, Batman was the one that kind of blew the doors off, off my, you know, 11-year-old brain. Um, that was the first time I'd ever heard of people trying to go to a movie and they couldn't because it had sold out. The concept that you wanted to go see the eight o'clock Batman and you couldn't because the entire theater was full, that was brand new. So I remember watching that movie and just kind of being um, a little in awe. Like, again, my exposure to Batman outside of comics and Super Friends was Adam West. Like, that was the only time I'd seen a walking talking batman and you get this different suit this all black suit and it's armored up and sculpted sculpted muscles on it was like oh this is incredibly different and at the time not really i didn't really know a whole lot about the story of bruce wayne like i knew his name Hmm. um but that was kind of it so going in i want to say i saw batman around nine or ten times in the theater like i just kept going back and the last time a really good friend of my uh, a really good friend of mine one of my best friends at the time a guy named jeremy reams um i think it was probably after school had started so it would have been in september that we we're like hey we're gonna go see batman and we're gonna wear all of our bat gear like i had joker converse style snick sneakers i had the the dumb hat that you flipped the bill up and it said batman on it we both had buttons and i remember we walked in and at this like the movie came out in june <laughs> like in september school has started people aren't rushing to the movie theaters and jeremy and i walk in and the usher kind of looks at us like oh god i thought these guys were them um but but watching watching that movie just had such a, a profound effect on me I mean, it's what it's what um motivated my mom to buy me my first comic book wow. which was part one of a lonely place of dying which oh. significantly different than the batman we got yeah. on the big screen so yeah i mean that movie even though like People can talk about it like it hasn't aged that great or just look kind of silly. Um, that movie still holds a very, very special place in my heart. Mike, uh, thoughts on 89's Batman? Yeah, similarly. I mean, Shannon's right. 89 was like a fucking banger summer. Um, yeah. <laughs> what I what I remember specifically is that it, a couple of things. One, I think this is hard for people to grasp today, especially if you're younger. Like, we have superhero movies coming out every three months now. We mm-hmm. have superhero TV shows. We have superhero streamers. We got we got Peacemaker. We got WandaVision. Multiverse of Madness is on the horizon. Superhero movies didn't... It wasn't a thing. Yeah. Like, Superman... Richard Donner's Superman had come out in the late 70s. And then... That was, you know, like their superhero movies were like a bottom of the barrel. Like if you, if there was one, it was a cheesy, schlocky B movie, like superhero movies, superhero TV shows were not a thing. And I growing up as an 11 year old at this, at that summer, didn't read comic books. I wasn't a comic book guy. I barely watched Super Friends. I was Smurfs. I was He-Man. I was Thundercats. I was Transformers. I was a lot of things, but I wasn't a comic book guy yet. And the hype that happened leading up to the release. Cause Shannon's right. Like it was the first time that I had ever gone to a movie. And you're like, oh shit, you it's sold out. 
the hype that managed to happen for a superhero movie when superhero movies weren't a thing was insane. Like people talked about Batmania that summer and I definitely like fell into that hardcore. Like this is why I became a comic book geek um, because I wanted to know everything. I saw the trailer. I saw all these pictures and magazines. I'm like, holy shit. I, I knew that there was a Batman. I don't think I even knew who Bruce Wayne was. Like I really, really didn't know anything. So I went to the local Walden Books at the Oaks Mall in Gainesville, <laughs> and I bought the 50 greatest Batman stories ever told, the 50 greatest Joker stories ever told, Batman Year One, Batman Dark Knight Returns, Batman the Killing Joke, a book about the history of Batman. And I read all of it leading up to seeing the movie while I listened to the Batman soundtrack with all the songs <laughs> by Prince. Like, I was, I went from, I went from zero to, like, Gotham City nerd in, like, a couple weeks like it was insane i drew pictures of batman for all my friends at school and then i went to see the movie and it was amazing and like you know you look at it now and it, batman returns falls into the same category of like when they came out they were super dark and moody and adam west's batman was the cheesy thing that you that i started to watch on tv now compared to the superhero movies we have you go back and look at the tim burton movies and you're like oh it's a little cheesy yeah. but uh but, <laughs> so they haven't aged in the way that they are the hard-hitting dark films because we've gotten much darker Batman subsequently. But stylistically, they are still amazing. Stylistically, this is why Tim Burton is Tim Burton. I mean, this is why we think of Tim Burton the way we do. Um, Michael Keaton, iconic. Jack Nicholson, iconic. That Prince soundtrack, iconic. Danny Elfman's score, iconic. Like, it is iconic, 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 iconic down the bat. And more importantly... That summer and that Batmania and what Shannon is talking about, a movie that was sold out and you just couldn't get in to see it, started to pave the way. It was a it was a mm. long road from 1989 to sort of Blade coming out and then X-Men coming out in 2000, which really paved the way for the modern superhero movie. Yeah. But 1989's Batman was where it all began. Yeah, I come in from a different point of view because because obviously I'm older than you guys. So for me, I grew up watching the Bruce the uh, uh, Burt Ward uh, uh, Batman. I grew up watching that Batman, the Adam West Batman. That was my exposure to Batman. Then Dark Knight Returns. I got that in 1986. I collect. I still have first editions of each of those issues when they came out because i was getting into comic books at that time had a folder the whole nine so i would sit there and read the comic books so i was into the batman thing and then they announced the film and then they said michael keaton i was like mr mom and then jack nicholson i'm like uh and then you saw the trailer and you're like holy crap and you go and see the movie i saw it eight times in the theater i remember distinctly because at the time Die Hard had been my record the year before six times in the theater I saw this eight times in the theater, lost my wife, oh, ended Shannon, sorry. And I lost my mind seeing this movie. I was going crazy about it, had so much fun with it. And I just remember that scene of the, I mean, losing my mind every time the bat, uh, whatever that is, a bat flight thing flies in front of the moon. Bat has the signal bat wing. in front of the moon. You're just like, oh my God, that's the bat signal. I'm going insane. So it just, it was great to see. And every worry or doubt or concern I had was completely dashed buy this film and i go back and watch it now every scene with the joker i think really works to be honest with you i'm not a fan of how they treat vicky vale now in 2022 i mean she she you know she dealt with cordo maltese she's gonna be scared of a clown 
Uh, so to me, I just thought I it was mean, a little bit of disservice. He's a scary clown, to that's, be fair. Uh, true, but that's the 80s, right? It did the same thing to Marion Ravenwood, but that's a conversation for another day. Anyway, and I really enjoyed the approach. And still now, going back, and especially the 4K versions, it's really nice, as Michael pointed out, to see the stylistic approach and the groundbreaking approach that Tim Burton had going into 1989's Batman. And like you said, this was not done. This was not done. And so the fact that this, this it had been since 1978 Superman that we had a superhero film that really broke some ground. And to have it break ground in this way, and in a small way, as Shannon pointed out, the fact that it was sold out, pre-preview what was going to happen in the 2000, mm-hmm. uh, 2000s, that things were going to be sold out. Spider-Man No Way Home, a lot of people said they didn't go see their first showings because it was sold out. And so it was just giving you uh, an idea that there is a taste for this when it's done well. Yeah, and I think that a couple also in the world that we live in today with CG technology being what it is, where we can literally create realistic looking worlds, um, art direction is a different thing. Like, like, you know, whether it be the planets of Star Wars or the, uh, you know, the superhero world of the MCU or anything, like we create worlds that look realistic. In those, in the late 80s, in 89, um, if you were gonna build these fantastical worlds, you had to go more stylized for lots of reasons. And so when you look at Batman and the world of Gotham City, even though now you look back at it and you're like, well, that looks pretty fake or that looks this like the there's something almost charming about the pushed stylistic nature of it. And also that led directly to what Bruce Timm did in Batman, the animated series without 1989's Batman. uh, We don't get the super dark for its time, Bruce Timm Batman that came out because that was what kids thought of as Batman. And obviously Bruce Timm's Batman, one of the most iconic animated things ever that we're now getting a new version of today with Bruce Timm and JJ Abrams and Matt Reeves. So you see how, even though you can look back at at what Tim Burton did and go, well, that's not my Batman. We've we've gotten Heath Ledger now. We've gotten the Nolan Batman. Reeves is going to do this dark stuff. Look at the new Riddler. Like this really was the thing that sort of cemented the fact that superhero movies could be what they became. Yeah, yeah. and that was that was the thing back then with production design is mm-hmm. unless you had a pre-existing structure that matched the look of your film, you had to build everything. So you look at those shots in Batman, and, you know, those are in ginormous sound stages that because I believe they shot that in London um, or England. Uh, so everything that they everything that they use, like they were building from the ground up. And I think they went even further in Batman Returns. I mean, yeah. they, they built even bigger, even bigger state or even bigger sets on larger stages. And I remember watching Batman Returns. Are we going on to Batman yeah, Returns yeah, or was there anything else about? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, you know, Batman Returns came out in 1992 following, you know, one of the biggest movies of all time with Batman. Um, that was the first time that as a, what, uh, 14-year-old, 13-year-old, um, the idea of continuity, that's the first time it hit me in the head. When he, when, when Michael Keaton's in Wayne Manor, I'm like, huh. That was different. That's not the same house. I mean, like the new suit totally made sense to me. And I'm like, I don't remember that cottage sized fireplace in the first movie. But watching what worked in Batman and Tim Burton kind of having more creative freedom and how much he pushed it yeah. in a in, in into that darker direction, into that sort of gothic opera, operatics sort of vibe. 
uh, it was fascinating. Like there were definitely scenes with Catwoman that, you know, 13, 14 year old, I was like, I got, I got feelings. Uh, I got feelings right now. And That's part of Catwoman, of course. People have feelings for Lee Merriweather and Eartha Kidd and all the other Catwomen from the from the Adam West. So, I mean, it's generational. Sure. I'm sure people have feelings for Anne Hathaway. I'm sure people have feelings for Zoe Kravitz, who are teenagers as well when sure. they go see these films. So, yeah. I think... What, and watching I'll... the change... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Vogel. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to talk about the change between Burgess Meredith and Danny oh, yeah. DeVito. Like, oh, yeah. watching how Tim Burton was able to take something that was established and be like let's put a different spin on it. And even though offhand, it's like, that is not the guy from that I recognize. Like, oh, this guy's actually a little more interesting, even though he's incredibly disgusting. He is disgusting. Uh, No, as I said, like, I think, look, I I watch Batman Returns more than I watch 89's Batman because Batman Returns is one of my uh, Christmas movies. So every year at Christmas, I watch it at least once. This year, I ended up watching it twice. Um, Again, kind of the same thing. Uh, So stylized. So different than what we think of as superhero movies today. Um, I didn't always love Danny DeVito's Penguin. I have come to respect Danny DeVito's Penguin because it is a hell of a fucking performance. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting story. But more so than that, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman yeah. might still to this day be the best thing about any Batman movie, period. Wow. Like, I don't know. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer coming home after Max Shrek knocks her out of the building mm-hmm. and the entire sequence of her going completely uh, bananas and turning herself into Catwoman, knocking the neon, uh, the, the O and the T out of the hello there so it turns <laughs> into hell here. Like, it is one of the most iconic sequences in any comic book movie. And Michelle Pfeiffer's entire arc and the relationship between Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne in Batman Returns is still one of the top things in and maybe in a superhero movie. Like I will go so far as to say it's it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And the, and what Keaton and Pfeiffer are doing uh, with each other in that movie is completely bananas. It also started to point out the Batman issue. Even more so, like, definitely with 89's Batman, there was a lot of discussion that Jack Nicholson arguably overshadowed Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. And then you got to Batman Returns, and you're like, okay, Batman's barely in this movie. This is a a Penguin Catwoman movie. Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer are, like, acting for the rafters. Uh, And it started to become that issue that you started to see where uh, Batman villains are so colorful and so interesting that they can tend to overshadow Batman that I think kind of leads to where we got to with Nolan's Batman, which we'll talk about another day, where they really took the time to focus on Bruce a lot more. Yep, yep. And that Michael Keaton has said or alluded to the fact that that was one of the reasons why he didn't come back as well is that it was he was seeming at the time to be overshadowed by everyone else who was in the movie. And here he is, Batman. So really, yeah, I loved this movie. I agree with Michael. I think it's be- the better of the two. Now it holds up the most when you go back and watch it for sure. Uh, and Michelle Pfeiffer is such a standout. I'm, I'm never going to be sold on the Dan DeVito Penguin. It just is too irritating with that. <laughs> irritates me i'm looking forward to see what colin farrell does in a completely different interpretation in this the batman movie but i i think this is tim burton's last gasp to give you everything he's got in his approach to the batman lore and you may go back and look at us oh it's not dark it was dark for the time just like nolan's film was dark for the time and matt reeves's film is going to be dark for our times because we have changed as a society and that's reflected in batman and the darkness within the theatrical versions of batman reflect us back as a society so at that time that's the amount of darkness we could handle 
the Nolan film was the amount of darkness we can handle. And now this is going to be the amount because we're a much darker society now with a lot more drama, a lot more conflict in our world. So that's and we've and people are huge into the cult documentaries and serial killer documentaries much more than they ever have been in the past and that reflects our darker society all right well let's wrap it up here this this has been a fantastic discussion about the tim burton film sorry we have to cut a little bit short we're all kind of uh, have time commitments here we have to take care of shannon what do we have to tell yeah if you'd like to follow us on social media on twitter it's at geek underscore buddies on instagram at the underscore geek underscore buddies if you'd like to follow me on social media on twitter it's at shannon underscore mcclung on instagram at shannon the geek buddy if you would like to follow mr vogel it is at mk tune if you would like to follow mr roca it is at the roca says mikey uh villains are a superstitious and cowardly lot but geeks are super cool and awesome and we want more geeks watching us so here's what you can do to help us out uh, you can hit that like button below. Uh, you can subscribe to Johnny's Outlaw Nation page and check out all the awesome and amazing content he's got. Leave your comments below. What do you think of the Tim Burton Batman movies? What do you think about Mary Elizabeth Winstead? What do you think about Lucasfilm? What do you think about the trailers? What do you think about Picard? What do you think about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Let us know all of that below in the comments. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, take a second to leave some stars, leave some comments, helps us go up in the rankings. And as always, the best thing that you guys can do is retweet this video, post it to your socials and tell everybody that they should check out the geek buddies because hey we're kind of fun absolutely thanks again to carbon health who powers and sponsors the outlaw nation and the geek buddies they're a leading national health care provider with a mission to bring high quality health care to everyone so whether you're a penguin or a catwoman or a bat man they can help you with any of your situations urgent care primary care virtual care they have 90 clinics in 14 states and they offer virtual care in 24 states they believe everyone deserves good health so go to www.carbonhealth.com and find a place near you all right that's it from us we love you madly take care of yourselves and we'll talk to you next time with another brand new episode from the geek Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.